I Love Lucy, you know, those TV shows that you really couldn't wait to hear what happens next to them. And you're sitting with your family at dinner and eating. It was kind of a new medium. And people, you know, if the news anchor was sick, people would get concerned. It's like a friend is sick, a brother is sick or something like that, right? So they would call the studio. They'd send soup to the studio because they don't know where the news anchor actually lives. Basically, if we are a fan of Kevin Smith and I tweet to him or I tag him on an Instagram post or something, I'm making myself known to him and his team, but he doesn't know me. He might not even see it. My name is Yanis and I am a re-recording mixer. I'm on the mission to share the stories of independent filmmakers and film industry professionals. Some have decades of experience, some have just shot their first feature film. Either way, they are all in love with the filmmaking and storytelling. So get inspired, learn some great tips and tricks, and find out what it takes to be a successful filmmaker. Today I'm joined by a very interesting and exciting guest, Tara Jabari. Tara is a digital media consultant based in Washington, D.C., but her main passion is storytelling. She's also a world traveler, producer and researcher. One of her studies was about parasocial relationships and fandoms. She talks about the findings of the research and there are quite a few things to unpack, so stay tuned. Tara has built a career that has given her different opportunities. This includes her recent podcast series, Who Was She?, where in this season she explores the life of Lydia Zemnov. But to start things off, Tara speaks about how she started in the industry and her first attempts and challenges to get her first film made. While struggling to get the film off the ground, Tara stayed committed to her aim to tell the story and get it out to the public no matter what. She also stayed honest to herself about the situation she was in. After a few unsuccessful attempts to bring the project alive and being stuck and feeling like the story may never be told, she came up with a brilliant solution. Curious to find out what it was? I'll let Tara to take it from here. I was obsessed with films and there's two in particular that I watched when I was like 12. And I thought, holy crap, if this is a movie, like if someone got paid to make this, why can't I? Um, and the films are called Fight Club and Dogma. So I always wanted to make film. Uh, I grew up in Chicago and I went to Los Angeles for a little bit and I hated it. I really hated it. But I started looking into film schools or things like that. And um, my father and mother were very heavily involved uh, with my education. And they recommended that I go for more of a whole, uh, like being a jack of all trades kind of degree than focusing on just one, you know, just cameras, just directing, just audio kind of thing. So I started doing that. And I found my strengths more in producing than the technical side, getting everyone together. I also got to travel quite a bit. I lived in New Zealand for a year under Ken Zemke, who's an Emmy award winning editor. And he moved to New Zealand and he started making these short documentaries about community building around the South Pacific. And so I was trained under him as an editor. And then I kind of it, it was hard for me to be solely into the creative realm because it's heartbreaking, too, because you work so hard and you work with so many great people. Um, and oftentimes it goes nowhere. And it was hard to find things that would pay. Unfortunately, in the arts, a lot of times people kind of take you for granted, I think. And trying to make money as a storyteller is quite difficult. And I 
started uh, to see a big, huge digital divide between different countries that I got to travel through. I got to go to a third world country, Vanuatu, often named one of the happiest countries in the world. And I noticed that us Americans and Kiwis couldn't converse with our hosts in Vanuatu because we were trying to get our emails to work and all that stuff because the, the internet's not great. And we couldn't really relax. Well, for them, they're like, it'll work when it'll work. So I was like, as much as technology has helped us connect, it also is dividing us. Right. So I went to graduate school and I studied that. But I always still wanted to be a storyteller. I always wanted to still work in some form of media. Podcasting around 2015 is when I got more involved with it. I helped people produce their own podcasts. Um, it's more of the radio show. It's not actually anything new, but it grew. And then there were a couple of stories that I found particularly the, the life of Lydia Zeminoff uh, when I was in New Zealand. So this is about six years ago. And I thought her story was really interesting. And for the last five years, I had been trying to get it made into a film. And it just two, three times, I almost got close and it didn't work. And then uh, right before lockdown, I consulted with someone who I worked with on a documentary uh, and I said, what if I make it into a podcast? And he's like, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easier, but it's definitely cheaper. So I decided to do that um, really quickly. She's the daughter of the man who invented the language Esperanto. And between two world wars, she traveled through three continents, uh, for the most part alone, which was very uncommon, to teach Esperanto to bring unity. Uh, right. They think language is a huge barrier to help progress people and, and stop hatred, basically. So that was her hope. And then she died in a concentration camp, and there are two or three really, like, this is what movies are made out of, kind of rescue attempts that didn't work out. I mean, she did die in a concentration camp. So I was telling this to the businessman who I started working for for a documentary, uh, and he really liked the idea. I think personally for him, he is of a Jewish background, um, and Lydia was Jewish. Uh, and so there was that. And then also, he's a businessman. It, it has to make money, right? Or it has to be worth the cost. And I was like, we got World War Two. We got World War One actually, too. Um, you got strong female character. You've got spies. You've got travel involved. Also, it's not cheap, but it's a lot of stuff that people like to watch anyway. So he was interested and he's like, yeah, great. But it also, I remember going to a panel with producers. One woman, she produced A Wrinkle in Time and it took her 30 years to make it. And basically she was saying, you have to be careful when you work with some people in film in particular, it's basically who are you going into bed with, right? It is very personal. Um, there's a lot of money involved. For one reason or another, it, it kind of fell apart. It wasn't a good match during the documentary uh, with me working with the businessman. Um, and that kind of fell apart. A couple other times people were interested, but it was a very much like, I guess, all talk. When it came down to it, people were 
sort of not going to take it seriously, I, I felt. So when I spoke with another producer I worked with on the same documentary, he and I really bonded. And he's a writer. He wrote a series of books and his publisher worked in radio and in film in the 80s. So he's like, why don't you talk to this publisher? And I talked to the publisher. She's like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me that it's more talk. People are interested. But when it comes down to it, like, will people put money down? How good is the script? We kind of talked about this earlier. It's It was really all on me. This age that we're in with streaming and stuff, it's a lot harder to get things made, actually, than you think. Even though there's more outlets, there's more competition. Getting people to actually watch it is going to be a lot harder. And so I thought, well, I really enjoy podcasting. I haven't really heard, I mean, yeah, I listen to a couple of kind of documentary style where it's like one person telling the story. So I said, well, what about that if I do it that way? And he's like, mm, you could you could try, you know, um, basically you have to pay for a mic and then have to remember it's only audio medium. Like you're not using the visuals too. So it's cheaper, but it also has that challenge, right? So that's how I started it with a podcast. And during lockdown is when I really like had to hunker down. I reread the book. I wrote the scripts. I recorded, I edited, all that stuff. Yeah. Have you ever felt attached to a specific TV presenter or a particular actor? There's a time for this, parasocial relationships. Tara did research on this and I'll let her explain what it is, why it's important and what it means in digital age. I decided to do an independent study. It's the same credits as a thesis, but it technically is not a thesis. And during another part of my graduate studies, I was learning how communication, personal, professional, has changed through the digital age, right? Can we sit in a family dinner without our phones? And if there's an anxiety with not having our phones with us, what's that? And even in business meetings, kind of thing, all sorts of encompassing. And from that, I learned about parasocial relationships, which was primarily when a person has a one-sided relationship with the media. Uh, it was started in the 50s when television was invented in, in people's homes. And people now were starting to get attached to the news anchor that came on every evening. I Love Lucy, you know, those TV shows that you were like, couldn't wait to hear what happens next to them. And you're sitting with your family at dinner and eating. It was kind of a new medium. And people, you know, if the news anchor was sick, people would get concerned. It's like a friend is sick, a brother is sick or something like that, right? So they would call the studio, they'd send soup to the studio because they don't know where the news anchor actually lives. Basically, if we are a fan of Kevin Smith and I tweet to him, or I tag him on an Instagram post or something, I'm making myself known to him and his team. But that technically from the 1950s definition, that means it's no longer parasocial. But he doesn't know me. He might not even see it, right? So my, my independent study was saying, like, it's still parasocial. Now, when he, if he replies... It's no longer parasocial. He acknowledges or his team acknowledges my individual existence and appreciates my fan and my appreciation of his work. But now with social media, we're making new relationships. We need a new definition of these relationships we're forming purely online. And we don't really have that right now. 
Uh, and it's really the first time that we have been able to reach out to the media and them being able to reach out back to us. And with that, there has been issues of kind of fandoms, like, for instance, and, and this has helped me actually get on a couple more podcasts so people are more interested in this. And But really, if you can watch anything you want, anytime you want, anywhere you want with the help of your phone, right? So you're watching, you know, a movie or a television show on your phone at the airport because you're bored and you look up and it's the same person you were just watching on your phone. And it's, it's like, whoa, what's going on here? This is the reality. And then there's the ownership to it. People are like, no, you have to take a photo with me. And they're like, I have a flight to catch. I'm so happy you're a fan, but I have a flight to catch. And they're like, you're mean, you're you know, an a-hole and all sorts of stuff. Um, and you forget that's a human being with their own life. They filmed it probably two years ago. They probably don't even know what you're talking about. Kind of. And there's this, uh, that's where you also have to be aware of it, of how much media is influencing your daily life also. And people are not really aware of it. So it's this balance to acknowledge the space. Like this is real life. And people have their own things going on like that, you know, like when people are saying, you know, I met so and so and he was such a jerk. They're like, well, maybe he was having a bad day kind of thing. And you're always on. Basically, I think it's Billie Eilish on her documentary. She's a teenager. She's exhausted. She was doing a concert and then she had hours of meeting all these music producers and their kids and she just wasn't in the mood. I, I could relate to that. But now everyone's saying she's, you know, spoiled. She's a brat. She's, you know, and she feels bad. But you can't have an off day. That's what kind of came out. She's like, it's not fair. I can't have an off day because we have so much expectations because we listen to her music all the time. We watch her music videos. We follow her on social media. We feel like we know her and therefore we should. There's sort of a sense of ownership, but there isn't. I asked her how the digital age has changed the relationships between people. Has social media connected or divided us? How living the real and digital lives at the same time impacts how we perceive each other. Tara explains this next and shares an interesting case study. Right now we're going through an extreme. Part of what makes it good, I think, is we are able to have a humanity back to it where we can relate to some of the media and the media can see what what the public is looking for. I think that's where more diversity can come from. There, there has been talks of people being more conscious of body images and, and anxiety and stuff because people have been sharing that either as a viewer or as the media. So then people are like, you know what, they look a little fat and they're like, well, that's a little rude. Like maybe they had a lot of salt right before the shoot. And you're like, oh yeah, that's right. Um, you, you have that kind of aspect to it. But at the same time, we're still in another extreme where people just feel like they can share their thoughts and feel like it's free for all. All right. So there's the negative aspect. I, I wrote this for um, the Game of Nerds blog, Demi Lovato, for her documentary about her overdose. Everyone attacked her friend who was at the party the night of her overdose. 
when we hear her side, she said, I had no idea she was on drugs again. She was giving us sparkling water the entire time. We were having a good time. I was tired. I wanted to go home. And she said, go home. It's fine. Kind of thing. Next thing I know, I get called and they said she's in the hospital over an overdose. Now, the fans didn't know all of this. All they thought she's like, this friend gave her the drugs, abandoned her. She deserves nothing but hell. You know, like she lost jobs because of these accusations. She lost her reputation. And Demi's like, it wasn't her fault. She had no clue because many addicts are able to hide this. And I was like, that's part of the problem, too, is we don't know the whole story. Right. Do you think she's bloated or fat? And you're telling her diet advice. Meanwhile, her nutritionist is like, actually, you ha- you need certain foods. And yeah, it's going to make you look bloated up, uh, but it's going to keep you healthy. You don't know the whole story. And I think that's the negative aspects of it. There's a positive. But right now, I think it's an extreme to the negative because we feel like we have our own opinions that matter that we need to be shared. And that's not necessarily true. And also, you don't know the whole story. Try and have that humanity back to it. Um, I think often part of the problem is we have such an immediacy with technology. We can find out anything any second, right? We don't have to wait. So we have that immediate reaction, and that needs to, to be reined back a bit, right? So you're like, oh, they do not look good in that photo. Or like, ew, why are they with that person? Or I do not like this song. Why did they record that? You might think it. But before you actually make that comment, you'd be like, well, do I need to say it? And if I do feel like I need to say it, how else can I word it? And I think once we start thinking that way, then it can get better. Following on from her discussion around fans and celebrities, I asked Sarah for her views on the effects of social media and to give some examples of extreme parasocial relationships and how they can sometimes end up being reflected in reality. Selena Gomez's song Hands to Myself, I think it's called, in her music video, she shows a fan herself. She's the fan and she has a huge crush on this. I guess it's an, a model actor and she breaks into his home. She sleeps in his bed. She watches his movies, things like that. And then the actor's coming home from work or something and he finds this young woman in his bed and he calls the cops, right? Don't watch the last 10 seconds because then that defeats the whole purpose. The last 10 seconds, it shows like, oh, that was a whole movie and we're actually a couple. And they're like, well, that's not parasocial, is it? But that whole idea is like, you like you know this person. You, you follow him on social media. You know what his favorite drink is. You know where he went to school. You know, all these little interviews that we do with our favorite actors and stuff like that. Then they're like, oh, I, you know, welcome to MTV Cribs. And you're like, I know where he lives and all that stuff. And you're like, how could he not want me? Because I want him so much. We have so much in common. He's never met you. If you ever tweeted to him, he has 5 million followers. He probably didn't see it. And that's nothing personal. You have serious mental needs so you should get help for that and that's the that's where parasocial relationship can get to a danger zone one of the most famous ones of real life is in the uh, the 80s where the man tried to assassinate ronald reagan because he watched taxi driver so many times and what is taxi driver a vet with post-traumatic stress disorder and 
feels like he has to kill this uh, political candidate to fix the situation. You know, he has this child prostitute that he's friends with and then the girl he likes works for that candidate. You know, like he's obviously not well. And the, and the person, the character is not well. And the person who watched this watched it and related so much to Travis, uh, Robert De Niro's character. And he saw Jodie Foster and saw a child prostitute. Meanwhile, she's at Yale. Right. He wrote countless letters to her and she ignored them all because she's a Yale student. And, you know, obviously this person is not healthy. And he tried to kill Ronald Reagan. He is now in a mental institution. It, part of my research, it was an update on how he's doing and his parents were trying to make him in like 2017. I was doing this uh, independent study and his parents were saying, you know, we'll take care of him. It's been 30 plus years. Let him out. And they're like, no, because you're older than him. And when you die, who's going to take care of him? He's going to need help and care 24-7. He's just not, mentally he's not capable to take care of himself. So he's still in the hospital, last I heard. So, so there's that danger zone. And I think the, the music video kind of showed that's the extreme when you start to feel like that ownership. Then there's the other ones where like, the fans like who see I think it's like in a one direction music video where like they're walking down the street and then these girls are like, oh, my God, I'm listening to you. And then they run after them. That's more of a common thing where they're like, OK, please stop talking, like stop trying to hug me kind of thing. And then they have to run away. That's more common. But why do you feel like you have to run to them? Because you're like, oh, my God, you're real. You're real. Can I touch you kind of thing? It's it's creepy because all you do is listen to their music and watch their music videos and watch their Twitter feed and their Instagram feed and all sorts of stuff. So you're absorbed by it. So that's what I was trying to dissect in those music videos. The extreme parasocial. Next, I wanted to know if there's any way that celebrities and stars can or should use their relationships in any way to build healthy and positive fandoms by making fans perceive them and their work in the way it was intended. It's really hard to please everyone. How many people will say The Godfather is the best film ever made? But you do want to try your best. Uh, there have been times where the media will, will share advertisements. Actually, I'm thinking of Fight Club. Well, you have to be very, you have to think of your brand, first of all, if you want to be known for the most part for this. When it comes to advertisement in more traditional sense, Fight Club, the DVD, had the different commercials. They had the romantic comedy commercial, which focused on clips with Marla and the narrator or Tyler, right? Then you had the drama you had the action film so it had more of like the bombs and stuff like that and you have like the bromance kind of like buddy guy movie right which had no marla in it and it was just uh edward norton brad pitt kind of thing so they kind of catered it to each different audience the the advertisement right so you have that aspect but they kind of they were clever on it and they knew and, and fight club Per the story behind it, the book and the film is kind of to push your buttons and to make you rethink of what is the norm and what is acceptable and what isn't. So it kind of works for them. But, you know, it's kind of hard to, to do that for other films, particularly in social media or in the digital age. There will be always somebody who hates it and always somebody who loves it. And you can't please everyone. But if you're more intentional with your messaging 
and stick to that branding, I think it'll help you when you get the hate and having a little bit more think before you hit send or post is a good uh, trick that often people don't. It sounds like duh, but that's where most of the problems are. And they're like, this movie sucks. And they're like, I hated everyone. That's why this piece means I hate you all and send. And you're like, well, you just screwed that up, didn't you? Um, kind of thing. So you want to think before uh, you hit send. And when there's a genuineness and, and a humanity to it, I think people will bond through that. It's a little bit harder, but it's not impossible. To wrap things up, I asked if Dar has noticed any trends in parasocial relationships and how filmmakers can use them to their advantage. The internet shows that there's an uh, audience for everything, right? For instance, I'm not a huge animation person or particularly anime, but that is a huge fandom. People love it, right? Uh, and often a lot of films copy a lot of anime and stuff. For whatever reason, I, I don't know why people are drawn to certain things or why people are horror fans. Like the horror genre will always have a fandom, even if it's bad horror, even if it's not even scary, people enjoy it, right? And if you're a filmmaker and you're like, I, this is why I loved Dogma and Fight Club, that they were so bizarre. And I'm not Catholic. I'm not a 30-year-old man, but I could relate to them just feeling like outsiders and feeling like no one will understand me kind of thing, that that's what I loved about it. So you never know what will... And I was, again, I was 12 years old when I watched those films. And I just loved... Because at 12 years old as a woman or as a girl, you know, there's a lot of insecurities, a lot of... There's a virgin suicides where... Um, the youngest daughter tries to commit suicide and the doctor's like, you're only 13. He's like, well, obviously you've never been a 13 year old girl. And I was like, preach. So when I'm watching like Edward Norton struggling with sleep and trying to like fit in and he hates his job and then, you know, he meets this cool guy and all that stuff. I was like, I know it's like, you want to find somebody who understands you, but also you can look up to. That's what I could relate to. Uh, and then he turns into a psycho and spoiler alert, he's not even real kind of thing. I was like, well, that's interesting. I remember talking to another girl. She's like, I did not get that. I mean, Brad Pitt's hot in it, but what's the point? And I was like, no, it's more than that. <laughs> so you never know what will, you know, like dogma. There were death threats for the guy. Uh, you know, people, it's religion. It's people's philosophy and and theology and stuff and so people are like how dare you it's like I'm not trying to say it's it's not useful I'm saying I love it and this is my interpretation of it and I'm like what does a poo monster have to do with anything but I loved it <laughs> so I have no idea what draws people but I think one thing that I learned is if you have something to say and you're passionate about it you'll find other like-minded people particularly on the internet and that's the nice thing is like you're never actually alone. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and find it interesting because I did. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow Filmmaker Stories on social media, where our guests reveal their most influential films. If you have some good stories to tell and would like to share them with the rest of the community, let us know. Till next time.